Hey there, and welcome to the Love Shared Podcast, episode 13. David Carnes here from the River Church in Redlands with the latest in our dialogue series, our monthly discussion where we sit down with some great guests and dive into conversations at the intersection of faith and society. Today's show is Dialogue 4, The Beauty and Complexity of Adoption, and we've got three awesome guests for you. Check out the show notes for all the information from this show, and I'll let our host, Nick Intout, handle the introductions. So this is our fourth uh, dialogue, and the goal is to get people talking and raising awareness about different uh, things as a church community and hopefully maybe even as a broader community. Um, we have the privilege and honor of having uh, Kim Leppins and Debbie Bierman and Tom Robertson with us tonight. And so on tap tonight is a conversation around adoption and the beauty and the complexity of it. Um, this uh, conversation is important to the river um, because I think there's over a dozen families who have adopted in the last 10 years here that I, I'm aware of. Um, and we have a lot of people who work in uh, social work fields, um, other people who work with foster care and homeless youth. And so uh, it's a, a conversation that's really close to the heart of this community. This is also a place where we have a lot of people who um, care for orphans in places like Mexico and in Africa, in Lesotho, at an orphanage called Beautiful Gate. And so I think for us to explore this a little further in mind and hear some stories um, is faithful to what God has called us to as a community. So if you would maybe by way of introduction just say uh, who you are and why you're interested in this conversation, um, how it sort of intersects with the story of your life uh, by way of intro, that would be fantastic. And we'll start with you, my good friend, Tom. My name is Tom Robertson. It's interesting when you asked me to uh, participate in this, the first thing I thought about is who are the heroes in my life? And the ones that are at the top of the list are those who have had the courage to adopt or the courage to foster or the courage to hang in there. Um, and throughout my career, I've had an opportunity to see all of that hero activity at work. Uh, I'm a psychologist by training with about 45 years of experience. I started when I was three um, and um, worked in community mental health center and in the schools at the beginning of my career. And for the last eight years before retiring just last year, I worked in child welfare in Riverside County, initially as a frontline social worker, which is something I thought I would never do. And then uh, as a supervisor uh, working with others to make decisions about whether children are uh, placed in out-of-home care or returned. So I've seen uh, tremendous miraculous blessings occur, and I've seen the dark and evil side as well. Um, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Nick. Great. Hey, Tom, for people who maybe aren't familiar with or um, not aware of the child welfare system and what a social worker uh, who worked for like CPS would do. What, what are some of the responsibilities? What are the phone calls that you get as a social worker um, that, that you show up at the door of, of a family just by way of sort of intro so people can well, understand? I need to tell you, unless, unless the research has changed, uh, social workers in child welfare are just behind air traffic controllers and having the most stressful job uh, on the planet. Um, 
the responsibility of the social worker is to fulfill the state and federal laws that changed child welfare back in the 70s to protect children and to uh, do what the system can to provide uh, a lifelong relationship, whether that's through adoption or hopefully in most cases, which is the case, reunification with family or place with relatives. Um, but we in Riverside County uh, get about 4,000 calls a year uh, dealing with uh, child abuse referrals. And then it's the responsibility of the social worker to go out and knock on the door and conduct an investigation. Sometimes that means encountering a dog, sometimes it means encountering a meth lab, uh, sometimes it, uh, or in most cases, it, it comes as a surprise and a real intrusion to the family. But the goal is to, as impartially as possible, conduct an investigation, gather information, and make a recommendation, either to move forward to establish a case uh, and take it before the court, or to evaluate it out. Um, so it's the responsibility of the worker to be that frontline assessor at the beginning. If, if there's a case that's open, then to work with the family to provide whatever services uh, have been identified based on the needs that they have to reunify the family with the child if they've been removed. And you mentioned the stress that comes with being in that role. Um, I imagine that there's a, a huge burden of responsibility that social workers feel to assess well, um, but also maybe even like a level of, of trauma in, in what you're encountering and what you um, face on a, on a daily basis in families and in homes when we're talking about things like, you know, um, I mean, you mentioned a meth lab, kind of tongue in cheek, but that's, 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 real, real. that's real life. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing kids raised in those environments, uh, and uh, obviously abuse comes uh, is a part of that as well. Is there a, a level of disillusionment for social workers or a sense of like... Um, in, in Riverside County, there's a very, in, across California, there's a tremendous effort to build on the training that social workers have had and provide induction or additional orientation before they go into the field. And then they're caref carefully supervised throughout. I've worked in the private sector and the public sector, and at least uh, where I've been associated for the past year, eight years, uh, there's a very high level of oversight and accountability. Mm -hmm. And it's a broken system, and mistakes are made. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of incredibly dedicated social workers who are out there on the front line. And in my experience, an extraordinarily uh, large number are practicing Christian. Uh, I think, call to this work because um, God whispered in their ear mm. and they responded. Mm. Well, we're really glad to learn uh, with you tonight and excited to hear more um, from your perspective. Obviously, a lot of experience uh, dealing with families, a lot of experience assessing what families need and trying to make good placements. So we're excited to hear more from you. Um, Debbie Bierman. Uh, would you say a little bit more about why this conversation matters to you, why it's important, and how it kind of fits with um, your story? Well, I have two adopted children, a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old, and I also run an adoption support, adoption and foster support group here at the River. It's a monthly meeting that um, occurs that we hold the first Sunday of every month in the evening, and um, 
I have researched a lot of materials to help with that adoption support group. I've discovered a lot of things that I wish I would have known years ago when my children were younger. You adopted, did you say 19 years ago? Or? Uh, well, they've been with us for eight, 19 years. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were, my son was 10 months old when he came. He's now 19 and a half. And my daughter was uh, 25 months old, and she's almost 21 next week. And when did you guys, when did you start the OAKS group or the adoption, our, our what does Oak it stand group? for again? Our it's, Adopted Kids? It's an acronym for Our Adopted Kids, yeah. Oh. We started it two years ago, and it's about anywhere from 14 to 20 people, and um, it's starting to um, have other individuals from outside of the river, which is what we wanted, other churches, and um, it's been a really good support for the individuals, that, for the parents that are in that group. Yeah, cool, that's great. And you, you have in that group um, people who have participated in all kinds of adoption and foster care, right? Both domestic, adopting um, mm -hmm. kids from the U.S. and, and uh, you know, San Bernardino County to people who have gone overseas and have adoptions from uh, Eastern Europe and and kind of all over the world, right? That are all right. part of the same right. mm -hmm. part of the same yeah. group. Good. Mostly domestic adoptions, but we do have a couple of families that were international adoptions. Yeah. Good. Um, and you're also kind of in the process of discerning and um, just caring for other kids as well. I mean, kids who uh, are. In, in a place of not having a home, and you and your husband are, are just caring for them and providing space for them as well, right? Well, we hope to bring home a nine-year-old, which is a friend of a family, friend of our family's family that we knew for some time that we hadn't seen in a couple of years, but we hope to bring him, if, if everything goes well, we hope to bring him home mid-June, mm. yes. So it's not something just like that's a part of your past, but you're in the middle of it right now. Yeah, when God calls you to do something, you try to live out your faith by answering the call, and that's what we're doing, yes. Cool. And, and by the way, in San Bernardino and Riverside County, we need about 7,000 more Debbie and Don Beermans to meet the need. Mm. That's in two counties. Mm. 7,000 kids that are currently waiting to be adopted or in the foster system? Adopted or in the foster system. Wow. All right. And Kim Leppins, uh, this conversation is important to you because you were one of those 7,000 kids. Yes, I was. And I want to say right off the bat that my social worker was probably one of my major heroes. He was my first hero. Sorry, but it's I mean, I remember it so vividly. Mm. And yeah, the system is broken, but I, um, I'm yay social workers. You know, I, I, tough, tough job, tough, tough job. So yeah, I grew up in the system. I was mm. taken away from my biological mom and my abuser um, when I was 12. And um, grew up in the system and left the system shortly before I was 18. I was found and determined because the foster parents, I don't like want to disgrace them or anything, but 
you know, they, they um, were not very good nurturers at all, at all. In fact, it was come to Jesus here, going back to McLaren Hall, and um, they made me feel like I was a hoe, you know, like I invited the molestation, and, and my actual foster dad actually tried things with me as well. So it was not a real positive experience. I had, um, you know, when you're taken away from your biological parent, you have this wound and you have this constant thing that follows you to want to be accepted. And, you know, God gave us the need to be, we were born with God-given needs to be loved and accepted and approved. And they would always, you know, dangle the adoption carrot if you're good, we'll adopt you. And apparently I was never good enough because they never adopted me. So I grew up with that kind of thing. And that followed me for years. Um, I was always looking for love in all the wrong places, always looking to be part of a family. I had so many moms and dads, it was hysterical because everybody was mom and dad to me because I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to belong. Um, so, but there was so much good that came out of it. You know, I was 12 and had to testify against my, my mother and my stepdad. And when I was on the stand, I remember seeing the court reporter. And I remember, like it was yesterday, telling myself when I grow up, that's what I want to be. And, you know, God knew the choices that I would make. And um, they weren't all healthy choices because I carried a lot of junk. But I did become a court reporter. And um, it was a very good living. And I do it part-time now to afford the passion but my pain has turned into my passion. I really, um, I really know from experience that um, children who are adopted and children who grew up in the system have wounds that need to be dealt with. And until the past is dealt with, it will affect their present and really mess up their future. And so that's what I do. I'm, I, I'm, I'm still am like shocked by it because I just wanted to write a book. And so now I'm on my ninth book and um, trying to help broken people learn how to thrive in life and love because that's what God's plan was for us, to have abundant life and to have it joyfully doesn't mean that we're not going to have problems. But um, yeah, so the whole system, the adoption, the social, it's, it's so close to my heart, so close to my heart. And I'm not a victim anymore. I am a victor, but there's still sadness. There's still, you know, you go there and you think about it. It's not that I'm stuck there. It's just, it was a painful time. It was a painful time. So um, I really have a heart for people that are broken. Very, uh, like a huge heart. Sometimes I ask God to take that heart away because it's exhausting. <laughs> but um, here I am. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for being here. And um yeah, on behalf of probably students and, and people that you'll never know that you've, you've connected with and touched and given hope to, um, just thanks for having the courage to share your story. I really appreciate it. Um, Debbie, you have, I think, learned a lot in, in the last few years and done a lot of research and been to a lot of events and conferences and talked to a lot of people about um, something that Kim said, uh, the... Um, the disconnect from her family and the kind of the wound that that creates. And even in conversation the other day, you were talking about, you know, how we grow up kind of in, uh, in the womb and there's a level of connection that we're already experiencing. 
Um, can you say a little bit about that? I, I, th I forget sure. what you called it. I read a book called The Primal Wound, and it's written by an author, Nancy Verrier, and she is the mother of two girls, one adopted and one biological. She has a master's degree in clinical psychology, but she writes and lectures about the effects of early childhood trauma and also um, what can happen when you're separated from your birth mom. And it, like I said, she refers to it as the primal wound. And she says it doesn't matter how positive the setting is, how positive the separation is, you know, maybe 30 seconds after you're born, that, that there was already a connection there with your birth parent. And when, when you are separated from that birth parent, that birth mother, that there is a wound that, that, uh, that happens in that person. And um, we've learned a lot about that, and we've talked a lot about that in our adoption support group. And um, there is... Texas Christian University's Institute of Child Development um, coins the phrase, um, kids from hard places. Um, hard places because of you know, abuse, neglect, trauma. Well, those kids have a hard time trusting. And that can lead to some perplexing behaviors. And um, we talk a lot about that in our support group also and, and how to get around those. But TCU created what's called uh, trust-based parenting. Uh, and it is trust-based relational intervention is the relationship that you build with the child who has trust issues. And it was very, very interesting and very, very successful. And uh, the lady that, the, the scientist that actually created trust-based parenting, Dr. Purvis, passed away last week. So we've lost, Ooh. yeah, oh. we lost a tremendous... Uh, advocate for children from hard places. She's actually the person that coined that phrase. And, uh, but there are a lot of different places that people can go. Uh, you know, my husband and I attended a conference last year with Dr. Purvis and her uh, professional co-workers from TCU. Um, and it was called Empowered to Connect. And it was just an eye-opening experience for my husband and I. We, ha we almost came home with a whiplash because Every time they said something, we would look at each other, turn and look at each other, like, that's, that's our kid, that's our kid, that's our kid. Well, that makes sense, you know. No wonder she does that. No wonder he does that or thinks that way. But it's very interesting because um, Empowered to Connect has a huge website of free downloadable material for anybody that is looking to foster or adopt or already is fostering or adopting. And they have videos you can watch, hundreds. They have audios you can listen to, hundreds. They have um, papers that have been published that you can read, print out and read. It's just this vast resource for any of us who have fostered or uh, adopted or are looking to do so. I think one of the interesting things is I was at that conference, too, and not having adopted, I, too, was experiencing the whiplash of them speaking a truth about the kids that uh, I've had an opportunity to work with. Um, we really have just started to understand and do research that's meaningful in the area of trauma. You would think that this would be an area in which we had a vast reservoir of research and information, but except for TCU and a few other places, that's really not the case. 
one of the things that I think has been interesting in terms of the research developments within the last five years is we've actually been able to measure uh, brain activity, brain size, and brain development of children who are in the womb. Uh, and they are influenced and affected to the point that their brain changes uh, as a result of that trauma. Um, one of the interesting things I've encountered in my work is that um, I drafted our system improvement plan, five-year plan, a few years ago, and one of the things that we learned is out of the 100% of families that we serve, um, substance abuse and um, domestic violence accounted for 92% of the cases in families that we dealt with. And in all of those cases, whether domestic violence or substance abuse, there's a traumatic impact that changes the brain. And the parents can't see what they can't see. They think, well, they weren't hurt. Uh, I don't see any scars and bruises, and yet it's what's below the surface that is producing a kind of damage that we can't see. You know, I did a essay several years ago when I was semi when I was retired from LA Superior Court and taken out of the court reporting field for a while, and the Lord was doing open heart surgery, if you will. And I had to go back to school to figure out what I was going to be when I grew up. And so I was back in school, and um, I wrote an essay. I mean, the Lord had an argument about this because the topic, there was topics to choose from, and one of them was the effects of child abuse. And I said, oh, no, I'm not writing about that. And he said, oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, oh, no. But you all know that when you argue with God, God wins. So make that long story short, I did. I wrote this essay. And I have to tell you, again, as if it were yesterday, when I was done with this essay, and if I could just paint you a picture you have a tree, you have the trunk. The trunk represents, let's say, the initial abuse, okay? So the, the sexual abuse was my, the major, and, and child abuse. So you have an effect from being molested or physically abused. Well, then that effect begets some effects. And then, well, we've got another effect over here from the child abuse, which is bringing more effects. So pretty soon you have this big fat tree full of all these branches. And basically what it represents is all the effects of child abuse, child sexual abuse. And so I wrote this essay, and I felt so validated when I was done. And my therapist helped me with some of the research that I literally, I pushed back the laptop, and I put my head down, and I wept. I wept for, you know, I was angry. I wept because I was so excited to finally figure out why I was so screwed up. I, I wept because, oh, that's why I did what I did. And I felt... I just, I'll never forget it. And so I, I had named it The Girl, the Box, and the Pieces. Okay? And so, like, picture, you know, you have a jigsaw puzzle. If you pick up the pieces that are all together, and you pick up, they all beget one another. And so I, when I turned it in, I'll never forget this. The professor was an atheist, and I loved her. And I, I just, I really loved her. I, it was okay that she didn't think like I did. You know, I, was, I finally had turned that corner in my life. And um, we had a really good rapport, and so I remember giving her that essay, and then a few days later, getting it back, and she turned in front of the entire class, and she said, and you, and I was like, what? Mm -hmm. She said, do you know how many essays I've read about child abuse? And I was like, because uh, she was like kind of yelling, she was mm -hmm. very opinionated, loved her to pieces, and I said, I'm sure quite a few, and she'd just gotten her doctorate, by the way, so she was quite knowledgeable. I said, quite a few, and she said, I have never understood it until I read your essay. You need to write. You will change people's lives. I need to find her. I need to tell her. 
She had no idea that she spoke into my life. I also, the last day of class, gave her the um, cause for Christ or the, the case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and I gave her the five love languages by um, Gary, what's his name? Chapman. Chapman, because she was getting married. Well, yes, let me I... tell you something. That last day of school, she said to me, I've, she grew up in a very strict Catholic home, and so I understood why she believed what she believed, even though we didn't agree with each other. And she said, I rarely see Christians live out their faith like I see you live it out. So I'd love to find her and yeah. tell her you, God used you mm -hmm. to speak into my life. What was your essay called? The Girl, the, girl, the Box, and the Pieces. I'm going to get that to you because I'd mm -hmm. like you to look yeah. at it. So I actually use it in my curriculum that the Lord wrote through me because I have a four-part curriculum that teaches people how to break negative behavior patterns, break cycles so that yeah. they can thrive in life and love. And so I use that as an introduction to help people understand, you know, one effect begets many more effects, and those effects beget effects. And so it becomes a little bit easier to understand why we do what we do. And don't get me wrong, it's not justification. Right. It's clarification. Right. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm no, I, I just think it's so interesting. If we've learned anything out of the recovery movement of the last 50, 60 years, it's that one person who's experienced something talking to another creates a listening and a speaking that can occur in any other kind of dialogue. It's your speaking about your own experience makes it possible for people who've been through that to hear it in a different way. And I see it in the Oaks group so powerfully where that group of folks who've adopted or are fostering can speak to one another from a place that uh, the others in the room can hear very powerfully because it's something that they share deep. Um, and it's such a great program. Um, ministry, I should ministry. say. Excuse me. Thank you. you. <laughs> so, yeah. So your your support group. Uh, do you think as you take take Debbie Beerman eighteen, nineteen, twenty years ago, um, and if you would have known that. Um, I mean, essentially, like what you said earlier, we can put people in great environments and we can love them and, and we can come around, um, you know, adopted kids. And yet there's going to be a whole world and a whole mountain of challenge and obstacles that, um, you know, that God is going to have to lead them through in order for them to find wholeness and, and healing and, um, you know, find who they are in in relationship to God and others. Um, if, if you would have known that, do you think that would have discouraged you um, as an adoptive parent? Um, and, and I'm asking that because I think that there are people who consider adoption for the romanticized view of it. Oh, we're going to have, a, we're going to adopt a, a, you know, a, a little boy or a little girl and bring them into our family, and then our family will be one plus one. Um, but then maybe they come into contact with something that's um, not quite that ideal, and um, it kind of scares you know scares us away a little bit. Um, so I don't know. Just for you, do you think it would have altered you had you altered your decision 20 years ago? Had you known? Um, no, I think I would have been far more comfortable going into it, because like you just said, we, had, we were romanticized the adoption. 
you know, bring them in, love them, provide them with a good church family, share your Lord with them, um, friends, family, and they're just going to grow up and be, you know, they'll be fine. But as we know now, because of the primal wound and because of trust issues and and um, a whole lot of other challenges that we should not have raised our children like our friends raised their children because our friends' children were not adopted. They didn't have that separation from their birth parents. And uh, we probably should have gone, done the traditional, you know, timeouts and whatever types of um, discipline we used in our home. There were so many other things that we could have done. And trust-based parenting has taught us that. Because with those kids, it's all about connections, which lead to trust. And, uh, and that's what's really important with kids from hard places. But I think that's the beauty of now, at, you know, thanks to TCU. In this conference that we went to, there were hundreds of social workers. So the word is getting out there. So in the future, I think uh, before somebody adopts or fosters, they're going to have some tools and resources, and they'll have a better idea of what they're getting into before they get into it. Do you think it's common? Um, and first of all, I gotta just say, I think you, I mean, I've known you and your husband for a lot of years. I think you were amazing parents. And I think the level of love and self-sacrifice, and I think you're amazing parents. And so, you know, anyone can look back and say, oh, I would have done this and did this. And certainly none of us are perfect, but I think you guys um, loved your kids incredibly well and love your kids still incredibly well. Um, and I know you kind of have a message for parents when you attend things like the Oaks, uh, those who have adopted, you, you kind of start off and, you know, what's your, your sort of little speech right off the beginning when you talk with, uh, I'll tell you what it is. Yeah. Debbie, <laughs> Debbie knows it. <laughs> Debbie's. He came and he said that, um, we were all great parents merely because we have adopted children or foster children that taking that step and agreeing to, to be that to that, be a parent to them, was makes us good parents, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I would often counter uh, adopted parents when they're ready to trade their child in. The adoption looked great at the beginning. They would come back in and say, well, I wish you had told me that there were gonna be these kinds of problems. And sometimes they actually were told, and sometimes they weren't told. But when you adopt, it's not like you get a return policy. And the level of trauma that that experience reintroduces to children is unimaginable. And at the same time, my heart goes out to the adoptive parents who um, are dealing with a situation that they couldn't imagine. I'll give you an example incredible mother, adopted a child at the age of three through Riverside County, um, did very well until the age of 12, and then she started sneaking out of the house and eating trash out of garbage cans. And then she started pulling the hair out of her head, and she pulled teeth out of her mouth, and she pulled her fingernails and toenails out. And you cannot imagine the lo level of trauma for this loving mother who had given and devoted her life, literally, to this child. And coming back to us, not for a trade-in or a return policy, but to say, help me. Um, and sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. But there are no guarantees, are they, Debbie, when you move into this process? No, 
No, but I think it's getting better. I think um, there's a lot of good resources out there. You know, I picked up a book. In fact, I have it with me called Adoptees Coming of Age, and it's written by Ronald Nightum, and he is a Calvin seminarian who is now a pastoral therapist. I can't remember the exact. Yeah. But and his book was just a shrink for God. <laughs> his book was just incredible, and um, a, a lot of these books and websites that we're talking about now, we can um, put a link on on our website. But there's some really good books out there that we have covered in our adoption support group, in our Oak group. And, um, and so we'll make sure that anybody who is interested has access to those off our website or on our website. Um, sorry, I was looking for this quote that I read earlier today that I wanted to share that goes along with what you were saying. Because I think a lot of um, adoptive parents probably, like the, the woman that you just described, who, you know, has, has taken a huge risk and risked loving somebody um, that she can't control. And, you know, parenting is like that, but especially when um, you're inviting somebody who has this traumatic experience into your life and saying, we want to call you family, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this quote just, I, I think, uh, kind of connects with this. It says, perplexity is the price of presence and risk is the reality of relationships, and puzzlement is the pattern in the parish, uh, and it keeps us listening to God. Um, but I think you could apply that to families as well, right? There's this, there's this when we risk like that, um, there is this level of puzzlement, you know? There is this level of um, things that are gonna occur outside of your knowing. So how do you help parents in situations like that or families who have adopted or are considering adoption understand that like kind of get over the the guilt i think there's like a level of guilt that parents have about if if somehow we take this amazing risk and do this heroic thing and bring someone into our home and they don't walk in the way that we're praying for and they don't walk in the way that we're longing for and they don't, you know, sort of fulfill our expectation or whatever. Um, how do you help like them, help people overcome that? How do you help parents continue to walk in that way? And maybe that's with all relationships, but especially um, with those adoptive parents. Well, with our group, I'll, I'll say, you know, it wasn't always a challenge. We had a great time growing up, but come around middle school age when our kids started to kind of try to figure out who they were or who they were going to be. I think a lot of rejection and abandonment issues came to surface. Mm. And um, one thing we talk about in our Oak group is our children are not a behavior. They're our children. Right. And so we have to really make a conscious effort not to see them only as a behavior, but to see them as our children. And do whatever we can to help them or walk through whatever challenges they are facing at the time. And, uh, and a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer, a lot of surrender. You know, they're yours, Lord. You love them more than we do. Yeah. Yeah. Kim, um, so I don't know if you can go back to that kind of time in your life. Um, what were, you think, like the kind of the core questions that you were asking as uh, a teenager about your identity, um, you know, about who 
who you were, what were some of like the, the, the things that you were wondering and that maybe um, just kind of grew out of that, that? You know, that's actually a really good question, Nick, because to be honest with you, um, you know, in the foster care system, you have to go to counseling. It's required, and I fooled the counselor. I, you not, weren't the only one. Not on purpose, <laughs> but, you know, you go into survival mode, to be quite honest with you, and so um, there's a couple different levels of the spectrum, and I was on the extreme. Um, I don't want to say I was in denial, because I would, I would tell anybody I was molested. You know, it just, it be, I became so... Um, it was like, I don't know, it was like there's this wall. There was just this wall. And yeah, I'm a foster kid. Um, my parents, you know, beat me and my stepdad molested me and that's that, you know what I'm saying? And so, so I ran, if you could picture somebody running from themselves mm. it, and then picture some, that person crashing right into themselves, that crashing, if you will, um, didn't happen until I was in my 30s, which is really scary. But um, the cool thing is, is I do remember talking to God when I would come home to the foster home and there'd be a sign on the door, go to the park. Mm. Okay. So I'd go to the park and there'd be all kinds of weirdos there wanting to continue with molestation, you mm. know, or whatever. Um, so I know I felt unwanted. Yeah. But I did so many things to cover up what I was feeling. And mm. that's the same thing, you know, with, with adopted. You just, you, you know, we all have an emotional dashboard. You have a car. It has an 88 light. It says, check your tire, check your engine. Well, we have an emotional dashboard. When someone steps on our foot, we need to be able to say, ouch. But if we're running and we're not paying attention to what we're feeling, we become immune to it. We're not paying attention. So... I really didn't start digging into that identity until I ran into myself, and mm. it took a lot. It was a lot of bad choices, heaped upon bad choices, all in search of to be loved and accepted and mm. find a family. And I will tell you, honestly, the whole abandonment issue and, and all of that, that still haunts me to this day. I, you know, I, in certain relationships, it's so cool, though, how God is revealing to me, you're, not, you're no longer abandoned, you are adopted, but those things, you have body memory and all of that. There's a whole host of stuff that goes into it. But those things crash into certain moments in your life. And so it's cool to, to be partnering with God and be able to go, okay, this, I'm feeling this because of that. So it doesn't really have anything to do with this. It's just put it on steroids. And so I need to be able to separate that. I used to mm -hmm. pursue relationships that didn't want anything to do with me all in the, you know, just with the I need to be accepted type thing. So... My identity wasn't really dug into until my 30s. Mm. And um, to be honest with you, we're still exploring that. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of exciting mm. and less painful. Um, but I traveled most of my life without that um, in search of not necessarily my identity, just to be accepted and loved. Mm. So. Wow. You know, it, 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 it seems to me that if I think back on the number of um, adoption uh, families that came back in with significant problems, wanting help or wanting to return, the crisis seemed to be emerging uh, at 12 or 13 as you move into puberty and the hormonal explosion takes place. And my experience with a lot of those kids at that time when we'd sit down to talk is that they couldn't speak. 
questions were being asked, whether it came from a therapist that you were trying to fool or your social worker who you were trying to win over so you'd be able to get some support that you needed and wanted but may not be getting. But one of the things that I would often do when they would be shut down is I would ask them permission to be able to speak for them. And what I would say is, I don't have a lot of answers to your questions. I don't really know who I am or why I'm behaving this way. I got feelings inside that I can't even express, but they are screaming to come out. And I don't know who to turn to. I'm disappointing you. I'm screwing up at school. My friends are not my friends. I can't fit in. And I'm lost, and I don't know where to go. I mean, it's hard enough for me as a, I can't say reasonably normal eighth grader, because I wasn't, but to look back on that and have the layers of trauma and abandonment and all these other issues laid on top of that. I look yeah. at these kids and I think, man, I'm in awe of them that they're able to sit in a chair and be in the presence yeah, of they're this completely room. unaware. Yeah. All they know is there's just all this mud inside. They just they have all this anxiety and all this anger and all this whatever. And so you'll do a myriad of things. You'll you know, you'll self-medicate, you'll run, you'll be an overachiever. And I was all of that, you know what I mean? So yeah. we've got a little grandson that we have guardianship over <clears throat> because my stepson got into drugs and stuff and so there's an abandonment issue there and so he's up with his other grandma right now but I will tell you he's six years old yeah and that little boy anger is starting to come out but you I want to answer your question even though you asked it of her yeah about the whole you know um the effects and stuff he's six years old and I I get scared for him because he was abandoned by his mother and his mom's in jail and all of that so I get scared for him, but I know in my heart, first of all, God's on the throne. And we have been loving parents for him. We've been, we've been Nana Mama, or Mama Nana and Papa, Papa, you know. So, and we've gotten to give him a foundation, and now he's with an, his other sets of grandparents. And so this kid has been extremely loved. So will he have problems when he gets older? Absolutely, because yeah. there's issues there that we can't fix. The actual separation we can't fix that. So there are going to be issues and mountains he's going to have to climb and things that he's going to have to overcome. But I have to believe in my heart that because of the foundation that a bunch of us have given him, his mountain won't be as hard as somebody else's who didn't have all that. Right. Like her kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? They were incredibly well-loved. And yeah, sure, there's issues there and they're climbing mountains. But because of the love that Debbie and Don have given them, you know, it's they're going to be okay. God's yeah. God's going to come through. You really speak to something that came out of a conversation with my sister, whose best friend has adopted three children from the Ukraine. And I was asking her today, so why do you think it would be important for me to share with people? Mm -hmm. And um, her number one was, you cannot do this alone. You, you simply cannot do this alone. It's going to take extended family, the other grandparents. It's going to take a church community. It's going to take friends and others to come alongside and walk with you, whether they're the Oaks group or whatever else. Um, mostly God, mostly prayer, but that as a doorway to the other resources that you need in the physical world. Um, but if you're trying to do this alone, that's what I saw coming back in the door to give us back the children that they had lovingly taken, who thought they were going to be able to, as you said, going to love them to wholeness and 
And it comes down in some some ways to whose needs did they think they were going to be meeting when they made the decision to adopt? Was it their need to have the child and be the loving parent, or was it a focus on the child's needs, whatever that might look like and emerge as time goes on because it's a grand mystery. Yeah. One of the things we discuss in our adoption support group is um, how, important it, how important it is as a parent or parents to initiate conversation about your children's birth parents. Mm. Even if you don't really know a lot about them and our children have always known that they were adopted. I'm not sure they really knew what that meant 100% until probably fourth or fifth grade. And there's a saying in one of the books that I've read that most children love their adoption, they just hate their relinquishment. Mm. And that's what sticks with them. Why Amen. was I relinquished, right? Mm. And, but there's so many things that you can talk to your children about that we didn't know about until recently. But, you know, maybe somebody has a great athletic ability or a great artistic ability or big, brown, beautiful eyes, you know. You can always say, you know, I wonder who you got your big, brown, brown, beautiful eyes from. I wonder if that was your birth mother or your birth father. Or I wonder why you're such a great athlete. I wonder if that came from your, your mother or your father. And just things that allows them to have a little bit of or understand that they still carry some of their birth parent with them, you yeah. know, even though they're not there. I, a lot of the books refer to them as ghost parents. Because really your children grow up with two sets of parents. You, who are the real parents that are raising them and caring for them and guiding them and then the birth parents. And even though they're not there, they are there. Mm. And when your child came to your home, they brought a suitcase with them. And in that suitcase are a lot of different things. There are beautiful, what we refer to them as jewels, like your brown eyes, your athletic ability, your artistic ability. And then there's also some heavy stones. And you have to, as a parent, as much as you don't really want to, you have to open that suitcase and you have to discuss those jewels and stones with your child so they have ownership there. And so as they get older, those p missing pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. aren't, aren't so detrimental to who they are trying to become. Yeah. You know, Debbie, one of the, honestly, moving into this field as a frontline social worker, one of the things that startled me the most during the first year or two was that regardless of the level of abuse, whether it be sexual or physical, I'm talking horrific abuse, that there was always that desire to connect with their biological parent. It crazy. It, it never goes doesn't. away. And that's that little child in you that always wants that relationship with your mom or your dad. Mm -hmm. And I was no different. I lost my biological mom. Mm -hmm. December will be, I think, seven years. And I will tell you, I did not have a relationship with her until three weeks before she passed. And I wrote a story called Happy to be Sad because I was so glad it happened when it happened because had it happened earlier, I wouldn't have been happy or sad that she was gone. I would have been happy. And, but I never gave up that hope of wanting yeah. Even though she did all that stuff, I never gave up. They don't. They don't. That is that little child in you that just always believes, just like when there's a divorce, the child always thinks maybe they'll get back together. I mean, mm -hmm. I experienced that with my little guy. Mm -hmm. my, well, he's now 30-something. Yeah. So they never give up that. They don't. I just, I had to say that. That's why you don't, we talk about not ever saying anything really bad about the birth parent because they'll own that, and you don't want them to own that. 
You want them to own the beautiful things, the positive things, and then be able to discuss the not so positive things, you know, drugs, abandonment, things like that. And, um, uh, you know, I have one of my children um, was with her birth parents until she was eight or nine months old. And then they left. And uh, she, she often says, you know, why, why was I, you know, was I such a bad baby that they left? And we try to say, you know, it had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with them and their mm -hmm. demons. And, um, but that's still something that, if you, if you think that, well, you have to go to somebody to help you work through that. But you and Donna occur for me as the ideal parents because you've been open to that. The second thing my sister said to share was, please don't have any secrets. Yeah. I mean, my sister and I grew up in a family of secrets, and we still carry some of that, that baggage, Kim. Um, yeah, we that tried that not was to the have advice secrets. she would give to families? Is That was yes. the advice? Mm -hmm. Don't yeah. have any secrets. Yeah, be, be open and honest as you can about... Age appropriate. Thank you. Mm -hmm. There's the expert. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, and that's something I've always appreciated about Debbie and something she's kind of mentored me in as a parent is, you know, dialogue with your, your kids that is age appropriate based on the questions they're asking, right? And things that they're curious about. And you've always, I think, done a nice job of having that uh, real candid dialogue with your kids um, based on the questions that they're asking, um, you know, and kind of feeding them age appropriate information. Well, I think someday they'll appreciate that, but I, I'm not sure they're there yet. <laughs> they're just leaving teenage Hood, you know, yeah. and moving into adulthood. So yeah. someday I, I hope they understand the importance of that. that sometime you know, later. Sometime yeah. later, yeah. Isn't there a scripture that says they'll rise up and call you blessed? There you go. Well, I'm still waiting for that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, just real, real brief. Um, and there's so many questions. I have like a million questions rattling around in my, my mind. And I worked with, um, you know, students uh, for. 11 years and so uh, I think the, the whole idea of abandonment is is real for people who have been adopted but it's actually it's it's a very real present thing for uh, most adolescents um, because uh, you know I, so sociologists say we live in a culture that has kind of abandoned children to systems and um, whether that be education you know we, we just kind of drop them off and then, and then trust them to other people. Um, and so uh, some of what, what you're saying, I think it applies to all students and all families, um, but then there is this piece, um, and I, I guess I wanna talk to you real briefly, Tom, about it before I ask a question about what you would say to people considering adoption, Debbie and Kim. Um, just briefly talk about the system and how you've seen the church and kind of the, um, government system of foster care and adoption uh, work in union with with the church work together for the, the you know the blessing of kids that are in a really really vulnerable place um, th this is the area where I in my humble experience believe that there's the greatest opportunity and the greatest intersection for um, government and the child welfare system and the church to come together in service of the call that we have, which is to take care of our orphans, right, Nick? Yep. Um, in Saddleback Church in Orange County, a number of years ago, developed a program called Faith in Motion. It was their attempt to reach out uh, 
to the child welfare system to develop a partnership to meet some of the needs that were represented and present in the child welfare system. And it turned out to be very successful, and that was adopted by Riverside and now by San Bernardino County. And there are so many ways and opportunities for real needs to be met, whether they are by adopting a social worker who then establishes a link with the faith-based community that he or she can call and say, do you have any clothes? I need a $25 gift certificate. Can you help me out with this or that? And also, can we pray for you as the social worker? Mm -hmm. Powerful connections made, drawing need and resources together. And it goes from there, providing scholarships for summer camp. I mean, there are limitations because of privacy uh, that uh, make it difficult for the church to have a necessarily a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a child and family. But there are many, many other needs that uh, can be met. I think historically it may be that the church may have decided, well, this is what we want to do or what we can do. And it seems to me that what's working better is for us to approach it in a different way and for the church to reach out to child welfare and say, what is it that you need? What is it that your social workers and families and children need? And how can we help to work with you to meet that need? Yeah. My history is not great, but from what I understand, orphanages were initially kind of a church-initiated, led movement, right? Mm -hmm. It was it was uh, yeah. Christian communities that were caring for, you know, uh, kids that were abandoned, mm -hmm. and then at some point that became uh, kind of a, a state role, and the church almost, you know, excused itself from mm -hmm. that call or mm -hmm. from that, you know, mm -hmm. that calling. Yeah. And um, I just, I, I really appreciate your perspective and, you know, challenging, I guess, wh what would the, the challenge be then to local church communities in terms of, you know, the 7,000? This may be the government's kids. responsibility and obligation based on federal and state law, but it's our calling and responsibility as the body of Christ to step into this gap. And... I, I believe that we're starting to do that, and there are avenues of cooperation that extend across government into the faith-based sector that are really revolutionary. We've got some open doors. Let's not miss the opportunity to step into that. Yeah. Uh, but also back to the question of orphanages versus families, because we talked about that last night, and I was thinking today, well, what did God create mm. as the mechanism for children to grow and be nurtured? And it was the family. Mm. And to the extent that we can have that work, uh, then I think we're following God's call and direction. Mm. There's one thing that we know in child welfare, and I'll be quiet. Based on a lot of the research that's been done, there's one thing that we know, and that is if a child can develop a lifelong relationship, that's the variable that makes the biggest difference in their life going forward. So, you know, there are many opportunities for that lifelong re relationship. It can be a mentoring in a church. It can be a Sunday school teacher. It can be the social worker, which was not a lifelong relationship, but, but had that impact. Um, but I, it may seem like a small thing, but it's everything uh, in the eyes and life of that child. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, so... Debbie, Kim, and Tom, feel free to jump in on this as well. Um, 
there are, I, I know of a number of families who have, you know, the idea has crossed their mind, hey, uh, maybe we'll adopt. Um, what would you say to that family? Um, or what would you say to uh, a church that was looking to um, see adoption be a part of the identity of, of its, its people? Um, what would you encourage them to consider and to think about uh, prior to, to taking those steps? Well, we, we do have a family, a young couple here that have asked Don and I about that. Don Beer and my husband and I about that. And we took them out to dinner and we talked a little bit about some of this that we're talking about now in trust-based parenting. And I did give them a, 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 video, a DVD of kind of an overall view of trust-based parenting and said, you know, I would never try to talk someone out of adopting or fostering. It's a wonderful thing. And we're called by God to do that, right? We ourselves are adopted into his family. Right. But try not to go into it blind, blindly. Try to get as much information, read, go to Empower to Connect, attend a conference, and do all of that, uh, and still make the decision to do it, but go into it a little more prepared than we did when we were back then thinking, oh, this will be great, you know, like you said, romanticizing the adoption. So, yeah. I, um, I would have to concur with that. I, I know um, the whole financial issue, not that they got paid a whole lot to do what they did, um, but it never got put back into us. I mean, I started working when I was 13 years old. Mm. Um, so I would say, you know, really check your heart and get educated. Just really surround yourself. You cannot make an educated decision without education. Yeah. You can't. So um, just really check your motives and, you know, check, check your reasons and get educated. Because like you said, there's a need that's being fulfilled also. When you want to adopt, there's a need in you also. Mm -hmm. And recognize that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But that can't be the driving force because you don't want to wind up disillusioned, which is what he's talked a lot about as far as parents coming up and saying, you know, I don't want to give it back, but, mm -hmm. you know, holy smokes, I had no clue. So, you know. And every child that is um, eligible for adoption or foster will have that wound. Mm. Everyone. It's just going to be there, and I truly believe that just through the reading and the research that I've done. And um, if you know that in advance, then you have, when those challenges come up, you you recognize them and say, okay, how are we going to handle this? You know, or if you, you sometimes you can handle them before the the challenges even occur. You know, we dealt with them years later. You know, years later, and uh, I'm not going to say it was too late. I think. The knowledge that we've received just in the last yeah. year, not only can we help our own adult children, but those in our group also as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, But it's just really important to know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, in any kind of stressful pregnancy, it doesn't even have to be where there's relinquishment. If you yourself kept your child, but you had a stressful pregnancy, a lot of these situations, a lot of that brain chemistry can change, mm. you know. If you had a, gave birth to a child that was in ICU for three months, same thing. They show that brain, the brain act, the brain changes that have occurred, you know. Mm. And uh, but that's okay. You can get around that. You can learn and 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 help your child through those whatever challenges will come as of 
Didn't TCU say it was like one month for every year of their life once they really started retraining the brain, so to speak? It's one year for every month of their life. Of course, I didn't start until I was 30-something, so holy moly, this is why I'm <laughs> I've been a fast learner since then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Hard I, we haven't mentioned, but Kim runs Chicklet Power Ministries, and her passion through these trench classes that she offers are to help adults get rid of that baggage from trauma, abuse, neglect. Mm. And she's doing a great job, and those classes are held here at the river. Um, but anybody can, that's listening here can go to Chicklet Power Ministries um, and go to her website. She and also there's something coming up real soon, too, I believe. It's a week from tomorrow. Starts yeah. a week May from tomorrow. 5th is uh, a Trench One class. It's actually part two, and we're going to be dealing with um, despair, which mm. is obviously a lack of hope, and we're going to be dealing with rage. But we call it anger because no one thinks they have rage. Simmering pot on the stove. You know, every little thing goes in there. A three becomes a ten. Yeah. As I was thinking about coming today, this afternoon, it seems to me that sometimes when I'm given an opportunity to hear a question posed to me, it's more beneficial than providing an answer, I think, that's going to meet someone else's needs. Mm. So I just, I, I did a quick hit of some of the questions that a prospective adoptive or um, foster parent might consider. Um, are you able and willing to embrace the mystery and uncertainty? Mm. How committed are you? Whose needs are the priority? Your needs, the family's needs, or the child's needs? How are you going to measure success? Mm. Of course, the answer for me is if you're thinking about measuring success, you probably might not want to go into this anyway. Mm. Have you considered fostering first? What level of risk are you willing to take? How much adversity have you faced in your life, and how prepared are you to deal with it in the life of another? Hmm. Uh, have all other family members living in the home bought in? Uh, have you met with other adoptive parents across the spectrum, those who've had wonderful redemptive healing experiences and those who've uh, had a tough go of it? Um, are you willing to consider long-term fostering. Maybe that's a way to step into it. Mm. Um, are you willing to commit to a lifelong relationship? What are your expectations of the child and the adoption process? Are you willing to consider an open adoption that will pull in the bio family? Are you prepared to move forward to the point of adoption? This would be in the child welfare system. And at the last minute, a relative steps up and the child is placed with them. Hmm. Now, I had that happen five times in the last 18 months I worked in the system. And I've never experienced anything like that before in my life. The, the level I don't of want disappointment. The, the pain and torture that the prospective adoptive parents feel, the bond that's present with the child being pulled from hmm. a, a placement they may have been in for three years. And yet the system is geared to give priority to the family. And sometimes families don't know that the child is, is up for adoption and available. So there, there are no guarantees all along the process, but there are also no guarantees after you walked up right to the door that it's going to be open. Yeah. And so, I'm not trying to discourage no, people no, no, no. in any way. It's just I, I, that's, that's the reality, reality of the system. That's the non-romantic you know I had an attorney tell me once. Love your children as much as you can today because they may not be here tomorrow. And he says, I don't even have adopted children. My children are biological, and that's what I do. Hmm. 
Yeah. What's interesting, those questions, like if you would rephrase them a little bit, you know, um, the, I was going to close with a question about how do you feel like being involved in the adoption process has shaped you and shaped your heart um, and shaped your ability to love and be loved. Um, but the, the list of questions that you just read, you know, could really, I mean, it, it really applies to, to just our, our faith in general as well, right? How deeply are you willing to go into the mystery? How willing are you to love people um, if they're not going to love you back? You know, um, how much ambiguity are you willing to embrace? Uh, how much disappointment are you prepared to uh, sit in? You know, how many answers are you willing to uh, leave unanswered or questions are you willing to leave unanswered? I mean, these are it's not the fun part of our faith, right? We want to say we've got all the answers, but the reality is, you know, the, the life of Christianity is one of puzzlement. And, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christianity is the only religion where God questions God and sits on a cross in pain and suffering and says, you know, why have you left me here in this misery? Uh, there's there's no other religion that does that, that, that honors the reality of the human experience as being one that is, there is this level of mystery and unknown to it. Um, and I think the, the adoption process, to me, at least what I'm hearing um, tonight, is one where that, that's like love at its purest. You know, it's, a, it's an unabandoned love and a love of the other who is potentially, and I mean, that's parenting in general, but especially with adoption, there's a level of risk um, that they may not be able to love you back or love you in the way that you had hoped for. Um, and so I, I wanna just agree with Tom and say, uh, you know, Don and Debbie and those who have adopted, um, there's a level of like heroic love that's a part of your story um, that we just wanna honor and celebrate and thank you for. Um, and maybe just kind of we'll close with, with this last question um, and then you can say your comment too, but how, how has this process and being involved, because it, it is the analogy that God uses to describe his relationship with us, right? It is the metaphor that he says is we have been adopted into his family. Like, and so God uses that metaphor and he uses that analogy, that relationship to describe what it is for him and us, right? So he kind of gets what it's like to be an adoptive father. Um, so what have you learned in the process um, of just being engaged in, at, at the different levels that you are about uh, yourself? How has it shaped, um, shaped you? Well, I think for me, God loves me unconditionally. And I think that I've had to learn to do that with my children, mm. even though I want things for them. But, you know, as they get older, I love them enough to let go of those desires I had for them or dreams or goals or whatever and let them have their own desires and goals and um, God says you know I love you and here's this book that I created for you this life book called the Bible it has my word in it and I'd like you to follow this right because this will bring you joy and this will make your life a little easier right um, but we don't do that right and so I would just say that I'm learning to love my children unconditionally. And um, I'll, close, I'll close with, in one of our classes, we talked about the 20 things that our, our adopted children want us to know. And the number one question, 
the number one thing that was on that list is I suffered a profound loss before I was adopted. You are not responsible. Mm. And, and I am not responsible for the pain that my children suffered. But God placed me in their life mm -hmm. to help them through that. Mm. And I'm okay with that. I feel blessed because of that. Mm. Great. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, one of the things that's been hard for me in my life is to see God as a father because I was fatherless. Mm. And uh, it's been uh, uh, a lifelong challenge. But one of the things I've come to realize recently, and maybe it's a different way to look at grace, is that he's actually allowed me to make mistakes. Mm. And in parts of my life, I'm very intolerant of others, and I don't, even with my own children, if you can imagine, I don't give them the room to make mistakes. My expectations of them fall into a certain pattern, and if they don't meet that pattern, sometimes I develop a resentment, and then we're off to the races. But God has allowed me to make mistakes. Maybe that's the way we need to look at all of our children, but especially the, this most vulnerable population. If we can extend to them not only love, but the grace that God has extended to a sinner like me, then we've got a lot more room, and so do they, to find their way, mm. which is not going to be the way of children who grew up under different circumstances. Mm -hmm. Children from hard places. Yeah. Right. You know, if I could kind of pick up there, I was reminded of when I finally got brave enough to ask God a very important question because I, like you, I had no one that I could trust all my life. And um, the choices I made and, and kind of beat that into me as well. Um, but I remember when we started doing some serious unpacking, you know, when God used my arm to get to here and we did some open heart surgery and we really started going deep and I remember asking him, why didn't you make it stop? Mm. And why did you allow it to happen? Mm. And I heard two words. And I firmly believe that those of us who do hear an audible voice have a platform, are called to teach. But he said, I wept. Every time it happened, mm. I wept. And so my heart is to share that with other people. Yeah that we're not God's puppets. Right. We all have free choice. And my Abba Daddy wept every time it happened to me. Yeah. And so my heart's desire is to help others realize the necessity of a love and grace of a real father. Mm. Because many of our earthly fathers have let us down. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible and powerful. And, uh, Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us uh, tonight, Kim. And Debbie, thank you so much for sharing the wisdom and uh, your journey with us. And Tom, thank you so much for sharing. This is like church. This yeah. Is like church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Except we got four preachers. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so, you want to include me in that group. <laughs> um, we really appreciate you guys being here and um, looking forward to continuing to learn in this together. 
uh, want to open it up and see if Gene or Harv or Bill or Mike or Don or Terry have any questions or David there in the back. Uh, anybody got any questions for these guys? Got older. I quickly learned that it was a trick question, um, that they didn't necessarily want the advice. So I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to give advice, especially in areas where I haven't experienced that myself, Don. But they need parents. They need a fully participating father who loves and sets limits and engages them as they would their own biological child. Um, that uh, prays with them, listens to them, uh, comforts them. The third thing that my sister said today about when I asked her, so what is it that you would recommend as advice? And the third thing she said was they need to be held a lot. And I found in my experience with this population that sometimes the touch is far more powerful than the word. Uh, and just to be held because it speaks in a physical way to what they missed uh, as they probably didn't have that opportunity to bond uh, with their own. Um, Can I say something to Don? Would that be okay? Please. Because I, I would say, you know, besides all the education and everything, but I know it must be hard watching your wife get lost in the emotion of it sometimes. And mm. I would say definitely continue to learn how to comfort your wife, first of all. But second of all, don't lose your voice. Because we need men to have their voice. But we as women tend to trample all over the men. And we complicate you. So don't lose your voice. Probably really simple people, so we shouldn't complicate you. <laughs> okay, now a question for for you, Deb. Um, this is a risky situation. You know yeah, that. this <laughs> is this is not one I'm I'm really proud of, but I, I think it's important because I think um, you know to some degree I'm kind of every man, right? I, I yes. think I'm fairly representative of 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 a lot of men. So what effect did my uh, not praying for you um, have on you and your, your children? Well, I've learned recently, at least within the last year, that um, because of the challenges in raising adopted children, that the enemy was there a lot. And I... Um, sometimes parented in oppression instead of freedom in Christ, right? And um, I'm a lot better with that now. God has really worked a lot in me lately. But there were times when prayer would have been great, but there were times when I felt like part of the oppression came from him um, because he didn't understand it either, and he wanted to fix it. And it's just not something that you can fix. It's something that you have to, um, like TCU, Texas Christian University says, it's all about connections and trust. Mm. And um, so it wasn't about fixing. So I guess I would say um, sometimes the oppression came from the enemy. Sometimes the enemy used you to oppress us as a family. But 
um, we pray now, and so it's really helpful now that we pray together and uh, and uphold each other, you know, because sometimes I'm weak and he's strong, or I'm strong and he's weak, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that is a, a good place to be. I think one of the things that, that we've done that I have to remember is we're not in control. Um, and maybe it's arrogant of us to think that God's only going to step in and do his work when we pray to him. Mm. He's always with us and never going to forsake us, always had that covering over your family, whether the request was coming out of your mouth or not. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, look at where you are today. I mean, it seems to me there's evidence that God provided for you everything that you needed just when you needed it. It might not have been the way you wanted it, but just when you needed it, just in time, he was there. Praise God. Yep. He's a good, good father. Yep. Amen. We will close with that. Thank you again for being here tonight. And uh, thank especially thanks especially to our guests, uh, Kim Leppins. And we'll make sure we put a little link to your website and Debbie Bierman and um, Tom Robertson. So we love you. Thank you very much. <laughs>